Hello, this is Mark and welcome to episode 34 of Nerdology. And today I am joined by author, podcaster and thinking woman's crumpet, Ian Martin. Hello. 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 I didn't know whether to come in too <laughs> ebullient in a kind of a sort of Jimmy Hill impression. Well, yes, Good I evening. am actually, yes. Or, or something, <laughs> but, uh, but hello. Uh, hello. It's jolly good to speak it's, to you again. It's been a it while. Has. It has. It's been uh, uh, three years and one month. Not that I've been counting. Not that I've been no, sitting here no. by the phone. Waiting. He never calls. Desperately hoping. He never, yeah. he never wants me back. Oh. Yeah, well, you know, I tried all the others and they were busy. Oh, so, I see. Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. yeah. They're not busy. Yeah. They're dead. But. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I thought it would be nice to have you along, have a nice sort of casual chat and, uh, and catch up on a few things that um, we wanted to talk about. What should we start off with first? I'll let you decide. Oh, heavens. Um, why don't we start with, why don't we look at the uh, Target books? Yes. So, um for old codgers like myself, not obviously not Ian because he's a lot younger than me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> back in the day in Britain, um, because video recorders were not exactly commonplace and repeats were very, very seldom, if you wanted to relive an old Doctor Who story, the only way you could really do that was through a series of novelizations under the Target brand. Um, of all the old stories and they were fantastic and I think there's a lot of kids of a similar age to myself who really got into reading just because they desperately wanted to read those books and um, since the new series has come back uh, they've had lots of um, spin-off books with new adventures and things like that but they never really novelized the the televised adventures until the last year or so, when a whole bunch of them came out all at once. Didn't they? There were, yes, four of them appeared miraculously, like some kind of yeah. unbelievably exciting, I want to say Christmas present. I'm pretty sure they came out in like April or May or something of last year. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> but it felt like Christmas because, and I don't know about you, but I'd been thinking to myself pretty much since the show came back, I wonder mm. if it would work... For today's kids, obviously, they do have uh, catch-up yeah. and Netflix and DVDs mm -hmm. and they can watch these shows over and over again. But it was, yeah. as you said, a very good way of sort of subtly getting mainly boys uh, when I was at school to, to read anything at all was a Doctor mm. Who book. And as you said, obviously, Terence Dix, who wrote most of the original books what a is, legend. yeah he did he, he churned out what i don't know 40 or 50 of those things and I, yeah. I and i thought so when the new show came back would it would it still work would that be a good thing to do and um i guess i was only slightly saddened that they didn't ask terence to do one of these novelizations but i guess you know, he's well i mean well into his retirement uh, well i now. mean he, i don't think he ever retires i think if you i, I imagine if you prick him it's still pretty green blood that would come spurting out and he'd be <laughs> right there ready and willing to to write another one but that said the authors they got together were a pretty decent well bunch. they got an amazing lineup so you had um uh russell t davis who will be known to mm -hmm. everyone everywhere um stephen moffat similarly yeah um jenny colgan who is kind of less 
known, I suppose, to um, people like us, but she's had a very mm. successful career writing kind of romantic comic fiction, um, kind mm. of mainstream stuff, but she's obviously a, a big yeah. fan and, and she did one. And some some bloke, was it? Uh, oh, um Paul Cornell? That's him. Yeah, Cornell. yeah. I, Cornell. I, I, yeah, ooh, that's the one, yeah. Now, uh, yeah, you know, who, again, in the 90s was one of the more uh, important uh, novelists working in in the Doctor Who <clears throat> arena, I want to say. Yeah. I can't do arena without doing the Jimmy <laughs> Hill. Arena. Sorry, I'm going to stop doing impressions of Jimmy Hill at some point. I'm just scratching my chin as yeah. you say that. Good evening. Um, so, yeah, they managed, and these things must have been turned around pretty quickly because I, I think the initial announcement they were going to happen came out, I feel like it was kind of early in the new year, about a year ago. Mm. Um, so kind of once upon a time, it just gone out on TV. Or twice upon a time. Yeah. Or whatever it was called. I can't, yeah, I can't read the spines from here. You're obviously I'm, a big fan I'm, of that I'm one. I'm yeah. about eight yeah. metres away and I have old man's <laughs> eyes. Um, and so they must have they must have basically produced these books in, I guess, probably... I mean, their, their, their target book length, you're looking at between forty yeah. and 45,000 words, they, and these guys are all professional writers with a, working from a, a script, so they could have easily mm -hmm. knocked them out in perhaps two, three weeks of you know, full-time well, I'm sure work. these days, with the technology to hand, I'm sure it's uh, a lot easier than poor old Terence back in the 70s with his copy of the script yeah, having to he, uh, he, bash it out from he, scratch. I imagine he had that on like a big lectern, like, like the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> Just this big lectern covered in candles and wax everywhere. And he'd be turning a page of that and then he'd have a quill pen in his other hand and he'd be sort of transcribing it. And yeah, nowadays they probably use those shiny new computers that everyone's always talking about. So, mm. yeah. Now, you, you said that the, the original Target books, they did tend to sort of knock them out at a, a fairly decent rate. I mean, yeah. You think these were, you know, they, they do 12 a year. You know, um, it's it's it doesn't take too long to write that kind of word count if you've if you've already got mm. the script. Uh, but obviously, a lot of the original target books, the writers would deviate quite heavily sometimes from the script. Well, that was one of the joys of the yeah. books, wasn't it? It's just it felt like you fleshed out some of the characters, or you, yeah, you had this bigger insight into the, the background of the story. I mean, I d I feel bad using using language like this in front of someone who does know J.R. Southall, but <laughs> Eric Sayward's uh, novelizations were genuinely, um, they were really quite astonishing. Some of the... Oh, I see. He's uh, hes agreed to do a couple more yeah. he, to, to finish them yeah, off. Yeah, so. which is, again, which is really interesting, but that's probably a conversation for a different podcast. Yeah, that's for another time. Um, that's for another time. There's good, actually, just to launch down that little detour there's going to be quite a few books this year which i think will keep uh podcasters in in business for quite mm -hmm. some time um simon and schuster are publishing the uh a book called um i love the bones of you by uh christopher eccleston which is oh, wow. uh, mostly about his relationship with his father uh but mm -hmm. also he does touch on a number of things that have happened in his career that I suspect um, fans fans Doctor of this fans podcast might be, might be very, very yeah. interested in. 
Um, and obviously, yes, there are these two new Eric Sayward novelizations, and and you wonder again, will he? I, I think it was the Twin Dilemma that he wrote that was sort of really um, almost. Uh, bearing in mind, I would have been about ten when I read it. To my mind, mm-hmm. then it was very much like reading Douglas Adams. It was a lot more adult. It was a lot more. There were chapters from the point of view of the twins' father who, uh, you know, liked to drink, and it was quite adult and quite funny. Well, let's be honest, I mean, the the televised version wasn't the best. So, I've you never know, heard that. You, you've got free reign to really... You can, the only way is up, I've got to stop it, really? you there. I've never heard that opinion expressed before. Well, you, you're oh, really? not, oh, you're right, not okay. a fan of the twin dilemma. <laughs> I think it's it's not helped by having to follow possibly the most beloved classic series story of all time. It's true, isn't it? Yes, you're never going to look good coming. That the week and the fact the budget that. had gone down the toilet. Yeah, well, they so. still had enough to to make um, Hugo Lang a jacket made out of crisp packets, and that that must have cost That's literally true. six pound yeah. fifty two. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in yeah. those in mid eighties prices, adjusted for inflation. Absolutely. Well, yeah, adjusted because yeah. he put on a bit of weight as well. Um, uh, so to get back to these target books, <laughs> um, they brought out four of them last year and if i'd done my research i would know exactly when they arrived but oh, i'm gonna, well, I'm we gonna say we it do. was kind of people have had enough of experts people Ian. people aren't interested in experts no, no that's people it. people don't no you're right you're right we live in a post no, truth post fact well, post sense yeah. reality yeah, we um, do. is it reality i'm not sure uh, yeah so anyway um anyway rose rose <laughs> rose getting back to these novels yes I loved, I loved the um, the prologue at the start yes. where it flashes out the whole character of what's, what's his name? It, yeah. I want to say Matthews. Is it Matthews? No. no what's no, his name? No. She's in the basement and she's shouting out. Oh, yeah. it, the caretaker. We've really done our prep for this episode. Oh, that's gonna bug me now. Yeah, yeah. him anyway. I. Th- so there's this huge backstory about how um, he was actually. On the field, yeah. and he was had embezzled keeping the money for all himself. the funds, which is really clever. Um, yeah. It's a, a genius way of putting or, or getting extra word count out of out of your script, um, mm-hmm. and yet it it fit perfectly. And in it kind of under underscores underlines. I don't know. It sort of puts Jackie in more of that kind of context because she was always that kind of mm-hmm. slightly dodgy kind of you know grafter kind of figure but but yeah. this kind of plants rose and jackie in a universe where everyone was like that everyone's at it um yeah. and that was that was just genius and that mm. i think is sadly because it was obviously just in the prologue but that's pretty much the the significant departure that i can remember uh, mm. In that book, I did like how uh, he made reference to the radio being on in the background and uh, an Irish comedian uh, jabbering away in the background <laughs> as she's walking down the hallway, <laughs> referencing the whole Graham Norton. Yeah, thing, there, there were some funny. lovely little uh, snide moments in in a number of those books. Um, mm. But Rose, I thought, you know, uh, so Russell T Davis, I think that's the second. Doctor Who novel he's written. He wrote Damaged Goods for the New Adventure range, um, Mm -hmm. which, 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 if I move my head, I can see on a different bookshelf. Uh, But um, 
I've, That's worth more than six pounds fifty-three. I hope so. That's my retirement mm. fund. Um, mm. But and that was what ninety-six. I want to say. So he's he's had obviously um, the best part of twenty years to improve as a as a writer. Uh, <laughs> not that that was necessary. Oh, wow. Um, uh, he's always been. I remember an anecdote uh, when he was pitching that novel to uh, Virgin back in the day. Mm-hmm. And he sort of sent in the kind of obligatory first three chapters and a breakdown yeah. of the plot. And I think at the time he submitted it, he hadn't actually finished the 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 story breakdown and he kind of trailed off mm-hmm. and apparently he finished with, I don't know how it's going to end, but I'm a professional. It'll be marvellous, don't worry. <laughs> and they obviously thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll trust this guy and he's he's gone on to kind of make a career out of that level of, of yeah, confidence yeah he's, he's done a pretty decent yeah. job hasn't he have you read the writer's tale i have he... i've got to, now if, yeah. if i look back towards bookshelf number one i can see i've got a copy <laughs> of the writer's tale yeah i do recall lots of stories about having writer's block and just coming up with some idea at three o'clock in the morning that well i seem to do the job to finish off an episode yeah i think i think that's a really important book to read because everyone who likes to sit at home and criticize any tv show but obviously you know we're we're primarily uh listening to people talking about doctor who and everyone's very Mm -hmm. quick to criticize and say oh this episode wasn't that good or this was poor or whatever i've got Mm -hmm. this great idea they should make my idea I mean, you know, we've all had our whole lives to finesse and hone our one great idea for one episode. Mm-hmm. People like Russell T. Davis and then Stephen Moffat had to churn out five or six scripts a year um, to ridiculously tight deadlines while having an oversight of what everyone else working on the show That's was it. also yeah, producing. Yeah, um, not together all the other scripts as well. Uh, and even having six good ideas a year is... I mean, not a lot of writers can can boast that, you know. Mm, so yeah. um, I think with the episodes Russell T. Davis wrote, when they first air, you don't even really notice uh, what what only become obvious as kind of shortcomings or plot holes mm. or deus ex machina, if you will, um, yeah. until you've watched it 10 times and, you know, not so few people do watch these programs that often that generally I think he's done a very successful job and certainly with the uh, novelization of Rose I think it it set those uh, that that I want to call it a series of four books but we don't know if there are going to be any more but certainly of that initial wave it um it was a great mm. beginning I thought yeah I thought so I mean you this as you say is is pretty much a beat for beat retelling of the the TV episode with that little uh, prologue stuck on the front. Yeah. And then if you're talking in terms of the the writing styles, I mean, you can't get much more different if you go to Stephen Moffat's uh, <laughs> novelization of Day of the Doctor. Well, the, I don't know about you, and I don't know if you uh, indeed ever read it, but it really reminded me of uh, Ben Aronovich's novelization of Remembrance of the Daleks. Yeah. So yeah, no, I can he, see where you're coming from. He takes the script as it was broadcast but adds so many extra layers to it and so many extra mm-hmm. voices and obviously this is to an absolute extreme because he's doing kind of very clever narratory things and we're not sure initially mm-hmm. 
who the narrator of the book even is. Yeah. And there's something, I believe each chapter is named for a, a particular doctor and there are these mm -hmm. running jokes about, oh, number nine will be along in a minute, you'll enjoy that. And, oh, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so on. Um, he's then also at the same time, within this device that he's created, he's still got to tell the story of the day of the Doctor, which is not straightforward mm. by any no. means. Um, and uh, and in a and I, I don't know that Stephen Moffat has written uh, long form prose before. I've got a couple of short mm. stories he wrote for the the Benny Summerfield anthology. Uh, yeah. Down Among the Dead Men, I think it was. No, The Dead Men Diaries. But I don't think he's written mm. a full-length book before. No, not a, um, not a novel as such. But, again, what a fantastic job he did. Um, mm. Oh, incredible. Very enjoyable. A real love letter to Absolutely. the show. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, it, it it takes a lot to, to, to go one better than writing The Day of the Doctor. Um, but mm. I think he's done that, and obviously this is a different mm. art form. It's a book. It's a different medium. But um, I, th I just think it's probably too sophisticated to be a target book. I mean, you could, you could. It gets compared to Douglas Adams, and there is that kind of playfulness in the way that he delivers the the story. I Absolutely, find. he is kind of like a. Oh, this is going to sound incredibly pretentious, but he's kind of like a a classic ballet dancer pirouetting gracefully above the level where wow, there's, there's like humble writers like you know <laughs> all the rest of us we're plodding away with a hammer and chisel trying to smack some words and he's just kind of basically he's doing the writing equivalent of throwing shapes um and <laughs> i yeah i mean and this bearing in mind again this would have been written you know, he's probably just kind of finished working on on the series and part of his brain yeah. has said, right, I'm free, I'm done with Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. And then someone from uh, Random House has phoned him and said, we're doing these books. Could you just very quickly spend a couple <laughs> of weeks novelizing what is arguably the best ever television Doctor Who into uh, an even more sophisticated book? And he's not really had much time to think about it and and just <laughs> bashed that out. And that's an absolutely phenomenal achievement, I think. Well, I, I bought that one and uh, twice upon a time as physical books. Right. Um, and they look lovely on my bookshelf. Uh, I will get around to reading them at some point, but uh, because I'm just so lazy and my attention span is so poor, <laughs> um, I ended up actually listening to the audiobook versions. Well, who's really reading those? So, um, Rose was read by uh, Camille Kajuri. Oh. She also reads The Christmas Invasion. Okay. And uh, Nick Briggs reads uh, Day of the Doctor, and he does a great job on that one. He does a pretty mean John Hurt. And uh, Mark Gatiss reads um, Twice Upon a Time. Oh, that works quite nicely then, doesn't it? Yeah, I bet he was probably very good at playing the captain. No, no, he was, he was much better at the first Doctor. <laughs> I, I shudder to think what voice he would have pulled out of the bag for that. But um, <laughs> no, he's very yeah, good. Excellent. Very good. I, I will. Um, I mean, I, I won't listen to them, but I'd like to, and that is the important <laughs> thing. No, I think. Um, 
Camille Kajuri was really, really good. It just took you back to that um, that era because it's blimey. What are we now? Fourteen years down the line. I know, and it feels ridiculous, doesn't it? I yeah. can still remember going home from work every Saturday and watching each new episode of Series One, Series Two, and uh, that just feels like yesterday. But it wasn't yeah. yesterday, and we are very old men. We are. Yeah. We are. Uh, so the I'm trying to think what order because I obviously being very anal, I read them in transmission order. So of course, the next one I read would have been the Christmas Invasion. Christmas Invasion uh, yeah. by Jenny Colgan, and mm. I think of of the four books, and this 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 is going to be controversial. I think she did the best job because I think yeah. she had the least to work with in terms of original mm. script. Um, you know, she had a, a main character who wasn't in the TV script yeah. for the first, you know, equivalent of at least half the book. Um, mm. And on paper, you think that's really not going to work. And I guess it's because of her um, background as a novelist uh, that mm-hmm. she's able to kind of keep you keep you flicking through the pages. Um, and again, uh, she brought her own voice to it, which wasn't particularly intrusive, um, but it was clear that there was a lot of uh, intelligence and energy being kind of poured onto mm. the page. Um, and with what I think was arguably the less amazing of the four stories that they chose to novelise, I think the fact that she did such a, a strong creditable edition is is really quite quite sobering because my yeah she does the um the whole um thing of we talked before about fleshing out characters that perhaps have a minor role and uh so i think in that one it was the the guys who were behind the whole um mars that's right she brought a lot of uh you know these whole new characters yeah yeah i really liked um and I, i think she had that like you say, she it wasn't her voice wasn't overly intrusive. It felt very much like going back to that sort of era of the TV shows. It didn't feel like a completely new spin on it, but it just felt like you've expanded on the story. And I, yeah, I found it really entertaining. I think, and this is this is the the most bizarre attempt at a compliment I've ever tried. But I think <laughs> that book read like it could have been anyone writing it. And by that, I mean it could have mm-hmm. been Russell T. Davis writing it, or it could have been Mark Gatiss, or it could have been anyone that we, we know and love. It could have been Terence Dix. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was no nonsense. We know what we're doing. This is going to be straightforward Doctor Who storytelling at its best. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she delivered that anonymity perfectly. <laughs> but I think, no, I think, uh, as I said, I think... Uh, her book is possibly the the greatest feat of um, of of novelising, you know, of, of turning a fairly leaden screenplay into uh, a really good book. I think she did a, a fantastic job. No, I agree totally. I think as a little group of stories, because they released they re released the um, the novelisation of. City of Death as well, didn't they? In sort of repackages. Yeah, did they? In the same sort they, of uh, they sort packaging. of trim it down, didn't they? And I think yeah. No, I didn't. 
but I think as a as a whole, sort of, you know, if you got the whole set, I think you'd be really happy if you were a new Who fan or if you were a seasoned classic. I Who think fan. so. I think so. Um, I, uh, just briefly, we probably ought to quickly touch on the the other book. Um, what, mm-hmm. what, what did you What did you make of three times? I did thrice upon a time. <laughs> I did wonder whether Paul Cornell would address some of the um well I think there were a few fans who had um, a bit of a problem with the characterization of the first doctor. Yes, there I I remember it being and talked I think he, about. He does. Yeah, I think he does kind of uh raise some some fairly interesting points during the the prose. Um but I think it's an enjoyable book, I think. Um, I mean, he's got such a great pedigree for for this sort of stuff. I'm sure it was a walk in the park for him. Absolutely, um, it must have been. I mean, it was. It's you know basically two old men going for a bit of a walk with a bit <laughs> of you know casual racism over the shoulder and uh, no, um, uh, it was. So I mean, Cornell in the '90s, I think, was the 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 most innovative of all the people that wrote for the the Virgin New Adventure novels, um, mm. and I was always really excited when there'd be a new Paul Cornell on the publishing schedule, and you'd look forward to, mm-hmm. you know, um, the oh, I can't remember what any of them are called. You've got Love and War. The one before that was Revelation. His his debut was amazing. Love and War was excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 fiftieth Virgin novel that was Benny's wedding that even that was amazing. Mm-hmm. So I was really excited again that uh, Cornell was doing one of these. Um, Human nature, of course. Uh, so so I struggle with that now because I in my mm-hmm. head canon the Virgin New Adventures <laughs> are part of the canon. Right, which means that the Doctor's had that adventure twice in two different incarnations, <laughs> slightly different the second time around with a different companion. Um, but that's just my own mm. personal madness, and and hopefully it won't affect anyone else. Uh, but I think Twice Upon a Time, as much as it was a a nice idea, I don't think it was the most successful episode of Doctor Who that's ever been filmed. Uh, and so I think Paul Cornell had a slightly unenviable job trying to bring that novel up to the standards of things like Rose or The Day of the Doctor, both of which are in different ways, you know, two of the most important uh, Doctor Who stories, certainly of the 20th century and quite possibly mm. 20th. 21st century checks watch 2019 you say (laughs) oh good lord um what year is this um yes so i think um it it, yeah for me for me personally it it wasn't one of the strongest episodes on tv and i think Mm. he did uh as good a job as anyone can trying to make it feel like an adventure when really it was. It was just. It was an anti-adventure, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. There's. I mean. There's no. There's no enemy. There's. I mean. It feels like there's going to be one. So to a certain point, yeah. you're following the the usual. You know, business as usual kind of mm-hmm. thing. But then it just kind of meanders a little bit, and 
Anyway, he did a a bang up job novelizing that. But um, do, I don't know. Do we think they're going to do any more? I mean, I I genuinely I have no idea. I work for a different publisher, but I, you know, I, I keep sort of googling these things and trying trying to mm. find out through friends, and I don't know anything about any plans to do any more. Um, I'm sure they would have sold. Well, I think everyone involved in the the last batch are all very much of the previous kind of production regime, weren't they? Whereas this is, uh, I don't know if. Well, if Mr. Chibnall and and Chums are perhaps going to be quite so focused on. Well, doing that. I mean, this would be kind of being driven by the publisher rather than the mm. BBC. Uh, themselves. So if they wanted to get a similar group of writers to novelise everything from Eccleston through to the end of Capaldi, then that could tick over quite happily in the background before anyone asks uh, Chibnall to do the same. And I, you know, I, 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 as, a, as a completist, and we've all got that, that kind of completist gene in us where we want to have all the target books in the right order on the shelf I can't believe you'd suggest oh, such a crazy thing. talk you know I, I kind of think yeah go for it just novelise all of them well I think it'd be handy if they novelised all the new series ones because just in case the BBC decide they want to start well, exactly episodes yeah, again yeah, yeah. absolutely but the danger of that is that some professional writer will get a phone call you know, it could be this year, next year, 10 years down the line. And someone says, we mm. want you to novelise The Doctor's Daughter. Now, I can't imagine yeah. any worse phone call <laughs> ever happening to anyone. Oh, I don't know. Fear her, maybe? <laughs> Actually, I'll no. Take, I'll no, take fear her they, over they might The be, Doctor's Daughter. See, they might be ones that are, you know... As we said with the twin dilemma, there wasn't really anywhere to go but up with those. So maybe the novelizations could give them a whole new. Well, I of think life. I can I can imagine straight away how you would do that with Fear Her because you've mm. got characters there that you can flesh out, and you've got a really interesting yeah. domestic kind of mundane setting, and you could do something really quite sort of quiet and dark and elegant with that. A bit like uh, mm. Ashley Russell T Davis did in Damaged Goods. Um, Mm-hmm. But with the Doctor's daughter, you've basically just got a huge, big souffle of, I'm going to say, cack. <laughs> and I don't think you can, you can do much with that. That's just my opinion, obviously. And everyone has their own least favourite <laughs> Doctor Who episode. That one might be mine. I don't know if I've given anything <laughs> away there. <laughs> have you? Um, I don't think you have, have you? We were talking... Before we uh, recorded, have you been able to check out Scratchman yet with the Tom Baker? I, I haven't. Um, I'm hoping there's going to be an audio book of it, and I'm hoping. Oh, there oh, is. There is. I have. I have. Excellent. It is, I mean, um, and it's it's read by Mr. Baker. I oh, of course, of course. How it, wonderful! I think it's the only way to experience yes. it. It is. <laughs> he is. Absolutely banana pants crazy. Uh, you get you get to the start of a chapter, you're like, oh, you like this bit? And it's like it's just complete. He's breaking the fourth wall. He just keeps on. Oh, that's coming out of these bizarre things. It's so funny, but it's I I really enjoyed it. Um, it's 
I get the impression that it's it's kind of like in two halves. So I get the impression the first half is um, very much what he and Ian Martin. Sorry, I'm Ian, Ian Martin. Martin. <laughs> I always I get know. you too confused. <laughs> it's kind of sweet. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, I think that I get the impression that's the sort of story that they got together and and were planning on making into a yeah. movie, and then it goes into this whole other dimension, literally, and it's it does get pretty bizarre, uh, but it's a very entertaining story. Wow, and it's it's very affectionate towards that TARDIS team. He writes it very well. There's some great humour in there as well. And was it? Um... Because obviously on the front cover it says Tom Baker. Was it? Was it? Was mm. there a, a, a ghostwriter involved? Or I I seem to remember hearing James Goss was involved. Oh, he gets so, around, um, doesn't he? He does. I enjoyed he? Yeah. him. What was it? The, oh, it was it was the documentary over Christmas where he got back together with his brother and they were going to do a gig um, at the O2. <laughs> uh, that was really good. But I've not read in any of his books. Yeah, Rome wasn't built in a day. <laughs> Well, that's put the cat among the pigeons. Um, mm. So, yeah, I haven't, I haven't read or heard it yet. Of the two, I'm. It's yeah. Get the audio. I think I'm more likely to do so, that. So so good. Um, yeah. Brilliant. I'll I'll put that on my list. Yeah. Um, sadly, it's a digital list, so I have to tap about on my iPhone. Scratchman, scratch. <laughs> oh, I was auto corrected uh, it. Scratching. Yeah. Quick, quick, spoil, quick spoiler alert for um, those of a sensitive disposition. Put your hands over your ears. Um, the 13th Doctor does make a, a little cameo during that story. Really? That's, really? that's astonishing. Mm. But kind of lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very kind of full circle, I suppose. It's... No, no, it's a totally different story. <laughs> Oh, you. Mm. <laughs> so, speaking of the 13th mm. Doctor, segueing seamlessly into another conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, have you seen Series 11 of Doctor I Who? I have watched Series 11 of Doctor Who. <laughs> have you got any thoughts on it? I do. If not, we'll, we'll just call mm. it now and just stop. I do. The problem is... Um, you have to be so careful and you have you have to give an answer that's so nuanced because if you if you're not a hundred percent behind it flag waving chest beating and going rah 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 this is brilliant then people think it's because mm. you're a sexist or a racist well you are a massive uh, misogynist uh, absolutely uh, i would never have a yeah. series of science fiction adventures featuring a female lead that would be craziness no absolutely not. Um, no. <laughs> so i think there were huge huge positives in series 11 um mm-hmm. and uh t- the first and foremost and it is kind of a, a fairly crass point but it's nice to see some people in the tardis who aren't uh white men um you know, it's been mm-hmm. it's been about twenty years since the character of Ros Forrester appeared in the New Adventures, and she was, at the time, kind of heralded as being the first, you know, a, a black companion, a companion of color, mm-hmm. and that was quite a big deal. And then, obviously, in the in the show itself, we've had uh, Martha and obviously Mickey, and you know, every year mm-hmm. you'd get kind of one 
um, person of colour would appear, or two or three. But this last season really felt like they'd actually looked at... I mean, maybe they just looked at EastEnders, but they'd looked more at our society and <laughs> thought, let's actually try and reflect what's out there. And so you've got this this wonderful team. Um, you've got Yaz. They are very likable, um, I, I think, as a yeah, team. Yeah, they really are. I do like the characters, although I have to say, and I'm echoing what I think a lot of people have said, I think with Yaz, she hasn't had an awful lot to do, really. She hasn't, but then you think back to someone like Nissa. And, you know, she came into her own in a couple of stories over two or three years, and maybe that is the game mm. plan for this current TARDIS team. Yeah. I mean, it is very Fifth Doctor at the moment, and maybe this TARDIS mm. team are designed to stick around for two or three years and they'll all have moments in the sun. But, um, yeah. I think there is speculation that um, it was very much Ryan and Graham's story this season, and then in the following season you'll have more for Yaz. <laughs> Yeah, well, that that would make sense as a, you know, mm. if you were writing it, you'd absolutely want to do that because you've you've gone a lot into the kind of family background um, of Ryan and you've talked about that and now you want to carry on that good work and you want to kind mm. of foreground uh, this kind of, you know, feisty you know, policewoman and, and, and tell her story and introduce her family again. I mean, the other thing I really liked about Series 11 was um, the kind of obvious episodes like uh, Rosa and Demons of mm -hmm. the Punjab. I thought, apart from maybe a couple of acting choices, um, that they were amongst the very best episodes. Um, well, the historicals yeah, are my favourites. The real standards, and, and, and they they picked uh, parts of history that I would imagine are still not taught in schools in the UK. Mm, um, mm. A lot of people will know the name Rosa Parks. Um, very few, you know. And I, I what, part of my job is I sell to, uh, I sell books to parts of the world, including Pakistan. I don't know the history mm. of Pakistan. I don't know anything about partition. No. Um, I knew more about Rosa Parks than I did about Exactly. So, so that was, and obviously what we got was probably, dare I say, a slightly filleted version of, of events. Mm. But uh, for mm. that, it's about time that these stories were uh, shown and to be shown on something like Doctor Who, which has a, a reach of potentially, you know, one in six of the population. As, mm. I, as I remember feeling when they cast Jodie Whittaker, you know, it's so overdue that they do these things with it. Because yeah. How do you keep a show fresh? And I, I certainly... I think in the past, I mean, when we'd had discussions on the other podcast, the Blue Box podcast, RIP, uh, which, you know, it would crop up from time to time, or oh, do you think it'd be a good idea to have a female doctor? And at the time I was like, well, no, I don't. I just see it as a male character and I'd, I'd, I'd be sort of resistant to change. But when they announced it, I thought... Yeah, I'm really, I'm really up for this. I really want to see what they can do, and and I love Peter Capaldi. I think he's one of the best actors to take on the role. He's an absolutely amazing actor and a, a, an amazing person. Um, but it just needed something to freshen it up because it it was getting a little bit tired. Um, I yeah, and I think. 
I mean, I really like Jodie Whittaker. I've seen her in, in quite a few different things. Uh, I was quite excited by her as a choice. I feel a little bit like she hasn't really had too many kind of proper standout I'm the Doctor Exactly, moments. the hero it's, moments, the, the yeah, looking sternly the camera. But then maybe that's the part of her sort of character. Yeah, arc. I, I mean, I think if we've... And to be fair, I think we have probably covered off all the good points from Series 11. Then I think we maybe do turn to think about some of the weaknesses. And there is a, a big kind of gap where where the character of the Doctor kind of should be. I mean, mm. I, don't, I, never, I never really saw him as a, um, an overly male character. So... I, I, he was a very good male role model. You know, if you're the, the kid in the playground who isn't very sporty, but you're quite clever and bookish, um, then the mm-hmm. doctor is, is for you and he's your kind of, yeah. your alibi. Um, mm-hmm. but there's no reason, you know, he, he's the most gender neutral person until he started kissing girls in the, you know, <laughs> but, you know, if you're sharing a TARDIS with Billy Piper, everyone's going to, make that kind of rookie error um so uh i uh, you know and i and i i kind of feel since um probably since the 50th i personally have been less and less kind of invested in in the show and and this is Mm. this is where talking about your fandom kind of feels like i'm talking about my faith and i I sort of want to get down and say oh father mark i have my my fandom has <laughs> wavered and i have known i have known doubt because i i wasn't i never really got that engaged with capaldi's doctor mm. and it wasn't him it wasn't his doctor it was i think stephen moffat just had nowhere left to go as a writer for the, the last mm. kind of three years um so i was i was very much uh yes let's have a female doctor let's have uh, a completely new writing team with a, a strong new direction they want to go in and it'll all be very exciting mm. and I was half right <laughs> I think a, a part of it part of me thinks well maybe it's just me being an older you know classic sort of older white male fanboy and it's just maybe it's just not designed for me and I'm cool I mean, with that. me too. It absolutely shouldn't be designed for us at this point. It should be designed for, you know, the the eight year olds, the ten year olds. Mm. And if I if I genuinely thought that it it knew exactly what it was doing, but that I personally just didn't get it, then that's absolutely fine and dandy. It doesn't matter at all mm. what I think, as long as mm. little kids are watching that and feeling inspired, and they're learning and they're falling in love with genre tv and this wonderful ancient character and the the wonderful companions then the show is doing its job but i don't know what Mm -hmm. this version of the show is trying to do i mean apart from just being quite bland and sort of peril free well i was talking to a friend of mine about this and he was interested to know he lives in the states and he wanted to know what the what my thoughts were on it because he Whenever he goes online, it's it's very much divided into you either love it and anyone who says 
it's not amazing gets an earful yeah. or you either hate it and everyone yeah, who's yeah, of yeah. the opposite opinion gets yeah. an earful it's a real sort of polarized view and i'll be honest i i think you know i picked out my favorites those historicals and they were really entertaining but i just found the series as a whole it didn't offend me in any way it just <laughs> it was very much a case of with previous series, you always had these you know, unbelievable highs and one or two pretty low yeah. points. And for you, it was the Doctor's Daughter. I, I might have mentioned um, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, there were all those, always those, you know, really standout, incredible moments. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this is very much just a plateau. It's just, it's not terrible. It's not amazing. It's just, it's just there. It's a. It was a season made up of episode threes, really, wasn't it? I, I yeah, mean, I felt. I think um, I'd have. I'd have given them, and I don't. I don't give these things numbers out of ten, and I haven't done for mm. maybe eighteen months. But um, mm. if I were to, then these were all five or six out of ten, which. Uh, yeah, you, know, you need some nines, and you probably need yeah, some. Fours. I don't know if it hurt her doctor not having those returning monsters coming back whether that would have perhaps given it a bit more of a lift it's a very brave choice to go in there and say no we're not going to have any old well it is and that's yet another way in which they're trying to do something different and probably and again desperately trying to find ways of breathing new life into a 56 Mm. year old television format so um the fact that you know largely our generation were a bit sniffy about it who cares you know as long as mm-hmm. as long as they they know where they're going then then godspeed but i mean and yeah. and as we were saying jody didn't have any of those big heroic i'm i'm you know i'm a time lord i'm from gallifrey in the constellation of casterbrus i'm gonna dr-, you know but then again she's playing a female incarnation of the doctor and maybe she's yeah. just not that much of a grandstanding twat maybe maybe she's like <laughs> oh you stay maybe she just internalizes well, she's, she's, that you know she's a girl she's like i haven't got time to stand here and make myself look like i'm more intelligent than i am <laughs> i need to get stuff done yeah. and i think so uh, for me the obviously rosa obviously demons of the punjab I also, mm. uh, oddly, I think my favourite episode was the uh, the witch, the witch, witch finders. finders. Yeah, love and that. I thought Alan Cumming was amazing. Mm. And I'm going to uh, sort of qualify this. I hate Alan Cumming. I really, I've never <laughs> liked him in anything. He always speaks so highly I, of well, you. I know he does, and he's a, he's an absolute puppet. But I've never warmed to him as a as an actor in anything. But he absolutely owned that that entire series he was the best thing in it by a country mile Mm -hmm. and the other story that i personally really liked brace yourself i'm the person Mm -hmm. who really liked the saranga conundrum because it it felt a bit moffaty you know to to a point yeah and and that and, and i was so relieved that we were back in this that kind of space and it was like oh yeah but I, mm. I know where i am i know what's going on he's the comedy relief they've got a plot line he's going to turn out to be a mm-hmm. traitor or you know what have you just for that kind of first 35 40 minutes that episode felt like i was coming home um and then mm. it it did a, a slightly different thing 
Um, yeah, and the, the New Year's Day episode um, uh, was... Uh, it was a relief for me to see the Doctor go up against a classic villain, but... It felt like the finale. It, it really, it really did. The finale yeah, that we didn't get. Yeah, and... Um, and if only they managed to put it in the box set, it effectively could have been, but never mind. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, it was great to get some new writers. It was great to get the, the cast they got. And they, I mean, they were all brilliant. Even, you know, mm. he, we say Yaz didn't really have to do a lot, but she was rock solid right the way yeah, through no, that series. All, you know, really I'm fixating on really her just because she's very lovely um but you know ryan was good too sure he was very Mm. good uh bradley walsh who i uh, haven't really ever seen him in anything before so yeah he was a bit of a worry going in because i didn't really people kept reassuring me that oh he's been really good in law and order and other things but i'd never really seen him act um yeah, he, he really yeah, impressed me. Yeah, we should me. be used to it. You know, good. how many times as Doctor Who fans have we seen some kind of late fifties former comedian get a role in Doctor Who and turn out to be um, oh no, Alan Pace? Yeah, <laughs> uh, Ken Dodd. No, he was good. I rewatched season twenty four last year, mm. and I loved every oh, yeah. minute of it, apart from Dragonfly. Well, then you would have loved Kablam then, because that was quite seventh Doctor. Do you know, I I I did ways. to a point. Um, hmm. I did like Kablam, but but by the end of it, I th- I think because um, the the kind of lefty anarchist turns out to be the baddie and and the evil uh, mm-hmm. conglomerate turn out not to be, I, I that offended my <laughs> slightly slightly basic <laughs> worldview. It's like no, the no, this can't be right. Um, yeah, but I mean, and there was a lot of diversity within that series in terms of you had some quite traditional stories and you had some really quite innovative and out there things like uh, it's mm. it's it's episode nine. What was it called? It takes, it takes you away. away. Um, again, I mean that you know that probably wouldn't mm. have been made in any previous series, but it was so. Featuring the actor Kevin Eldon. I, do you know, I didn't notice him when I watched it and I'm probably not mm. going to go back and watch it again so I'm never going <laughs> to see that. Maybe I'll Google it or YouTube it or something. Mm. Um, yeah, but he's one of those people you think would have been in it a long time ago. Back when you're dropping yeah, Simon Pegg into an episode, you're putting mm. Kevin Eldon in somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, d- d- so w- where do you stand then on, on series... Uh, te- uh, 11 I think it it looks the best the series has ever looked I think the the um, I know there's a lot of talk before the series started about they'd invested a lot of money in new lenses yeah, yeah, and cameras yeah. and you can see every penny of that on the screen it looks really stunning and I quite enjoyed the change in the music as well I, I really like Murray Gold I thought he did a great job for the time he was in the yeah. show um, but I felt that they just needed to freshen it up a bit and I, I really liked the the direction they took it in. And uh yeah, I I think that's those are two really big positives. Um I just feel So I've know. just I've just remembered my um for the for the last six months, whenever anyone's asked me to try and encapsulate where I think the series might possibly have not gone wrong, because it hasn't gone wrong, it got huge viewers, it just it didn't personally <laughs> You know, it didn't appeal to me personally. 
Um, yeah. I don't like the new console room. I don't like that huge lump of no. crystal sticking out of the TARDIS. Yeah, and the big prong. I don't like that. If she'd yeah. explicitly said mm. in the script, oh, yeah, it's mirrored the new Sonic that I built, so it's got a huge crystal in it, that would yeah. have that mm. I, then I would like that but they didn't do that so I'm annoyed by it so and <laughs> I think the first kind of warning sirens went off for me in episode 2 the ghost monument we've got mm. this planet and every inch of it is fatal and deadly and it's been weaponized and all yeah. we've got to do that with is some dangerous water and some evil cloths yeah. It's just a little bit yeah. cheap. Mm. Um, I'm sure they probably had to spend a lot of money on CG to make the cloths sort of float in the air. But this is stuff, but, but this um, is my question, Mark. Yeah. By the time you're spending money on CG, spend it on like huge monsters with lots of arms and fangs mm. and, and like guns for, for knees. <laughs> Don't spend it on cloths. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Well, I mean, they are making uh, Series 12 as we speak, so maybe uh, the chip is listening in and he'll uh, take on board some of what he said. I don't think he will. I think he's taken a view that no. the, the pale, stale male uh, section of fandom have kind of had their day and they've had their fun, and he's making <laughs> a different show for a new generation who are, uh, you know, not, not us. Not. And they seem to have enjoyed it perfectly well, and that's all that... And that's probably exactly, as it should be, to be Exactly, fair. and we can always dig out our dusty old VHS tapes of... Well, yeah, you know, we've got 50-odd years exactly. to get back on, so it's not okay. all bad. I mean, I, so I loved the Stephen Moffat era, but I was very much aware that in the the sort of margins of existence, there were notionally these human beings who didn't like Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. Yeah. And... Well, I mean, going back to you said you watched rewatched season twenty four. Yeah, um, I remember finding the McCoy era really embarrassing to watch. Oh as yeah, a no, teenager. absolutely, it was. I had to go and sit in a different room. Yeah, for the rest of the family. I remember I that it. too. And and you and now going back to up it in the playground for for liking it, but <laughs> but going back to it yeah. now, I mean, some of it is really really good yeah. Doctor Who. So, you know, there's always that some, some element things, of hindsight going some, back to it. At yeah, some point. things just need time to... And I'm, I'm sure they were saying this in uh, probably Strangers in Space, but one of the podcasts I listened to, they were saying that, you know, until we can see season 12, 13 and 14 or whatever, then we can't mm. really judge what season 11 might be setting up. So, yeah. you know... Yeah. Uh, if 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 a human being like me can't give it a year, wait for the next series, and then put it in some kind of context, then I don't know what's right mm -hmm. with the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm looking forward to to seeing what they do next. Um, I just want them to, I don't know, take a few more chances. And um... I tell you what, I I was thinking the other day, which I, and I literally cannot imagine this. But it would be really something to see Missy in the next series because I cannot imagine Missy going up against Jodie Whittaker's Doctor. Mm. Um, I certainly can't imagine Missy being defeated by Jodie Whittaker's Doctor. But the <laughs> fact is she would be, and I think a confrontation like yeah. that might be the kind of yeah. contextualising thing that some of us need to, to be, oh, oh, now I get it. 
Now I see yeah. how it works. Now I see where her strength lies. Um, so you know that's that's something that in a in a million years won't happen, but it would be wonderful if it did. Hello, I'm Rich Terring. I never listen to nerdology <laughs> because I am way too cool. But carry on listening, nerds. So, Ian. Yes. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Sorry, I was looking um, over there. I. <laughs> I on my. Uh, series of bookshelves which are full of dvds and blu-rays and other assorted digital media ephemera tat, tat, tat. let's go with say. tat um yeah um i've got the uh, the complete original series of twin peaks oh lucky you now i've i've purchased this many years right. ago because i remember finding the the series quite intriguing when it was on mm-hmm. bbc2 back mm-hmm. in the 90s i i watched one whole episode, and uh, probably put it back on the shelf and haven't watched it again since. Can you sell it to me in a way that will make me want to go and revisit I it? I don't know who you are anymore. <laughs> you're, you're dead to me. Um, I... Okay, well, I've been marked. <laughs> <laughs> I've been scandalised. I think mm. we we live in an age of what I believe some people are calling platinum television, some people are calling prestige Mm -hmm. television, and it's an age typified by the involvement of kind of previously exclusively Hollywood uh, luminaries getting involved in television, whether that's actors in things like Game of Thrones, uh, House of Cards, or whether it's writers or directors, but basically people are more... Uh, the, there's more fluidity between things to the point where a, a, a you know a 13 episode TV drama is produced to the same standard as a Hollywood movie um, by mm-hmm. the same people who would have produced it as a Hollywood movie. Yeah. And I think the kind of genesis of this kind of golden period of television is very much Twin Peaks. Um, you mm-hmm. had. David Lynch uh, and obviously uh, lots of the cast coming from uh, film to work on this TV show, which was co-scripted with Mark Frost, who um, I'm, bound to, I'm bound to get this wrong. He did uh, Hill Street Blues in the 80s, so he had a very strong, um, you know, narrative television pedigree. And in the the kind of oh, I'm getting my frosts mixed up. Was who was it who did the X Files? Um, Someone else. Oh God, maybe it was a different Mark Frost, or Mike Frost, or Nick. Fro- I don't know. It wasn't Nick. It wasn't Nick Frost. That would be <laughs> <Nick> weird. Um, <laughs> anyway, I'll put you off your stroke there. You carry on. Um, you had the yeah, yeah. So you had you had the kind of brilliant. Uh, mind and artistic sensibilities of David Lynch but working hand in hand with someone with the brilliant televisual narrative grounding um, and rigour of Mark Frost and what unfolded was pretty spectacular. The first series which was um, the pilot episode and seven uh, standard length episodes was a very straightforward um, murder mystery, detective story, kind of police procedural 
set in this town that had other stuff going on in the margins and and so mm. every scene is so much more than just a straightforward scene of a, a, a murder mystery um and there is a lot to fall in love with and from the word go you can see how the show is quite clearly going to survive long after this murder has been wrapped up because there's just so much genius in the in the shadows in this town um it's it's bat poop crazy. I mean, it, it became it, it became really that with the second series. So, uh, so David Lynch's kind of background with obviously his first feature, Eraserhead, and to mm. a greater or lesser extent, in most of his other films up to that point, there was this strong. People always use the word surreal um, because they don't really know what the word surreal means, or they don't necessarily know what genre of filmmaking they're actually looking at but he did lots of weird shite and um mm, he and really did he was kind of given slightly more scope to kind of ad lib and sort of jazz style just just throw whatever he liked at the screen at the start of the second series of twin peaks and then he personally mm -hmm. stepped away to go and make uh, wild at heart um leaving okay. the show um kind of in the hands of of mark frost and and by that point a fairly established uh team of staff writers who um amongst them were some incredibly talented people who've gone on to write some incredibly good things but for that second series because the mystery of who killed laura palmer had been the kind of the zeitgeisty thing of 1990 mm. it was all over television uh, magazines the, all all media everyone was obsessed with it and that had become mm -hmm. kind of the as it was always meant to be the kind of thing that the show lived or died on and the network demanded that that particular storyline be resolved that the audience get that payoff um sooner rather than later so i think they kind of hastily closed off that chapter halfway through series mm -hmm. two after which point a lot of the audience felt rightly or wrongly, and I would argue very much wrongly, that they'd kind of got what they came for and the show had mm -hmm. nowhere left to go. Uh, and it did kind of tread water for a good five or six episodes following the revelation of who had killed Laura Palmer. But then it, it built mm -hmm. back up to such an absolutely amazing end, which I think proved right there and then that this was a show that could go on for a number of years um and could go in literally any direction it chose to it was it was such a powerful last kind of eight to ten episodes i think that's probably the the best uh finale or you know run of final episodes to a, a mm -hmm. tv series i can remember uh and season two finished brilliantly and then they knocked it on the head until, Until uh, they did well, so that they so David Lynch turned it into a movie in '94, yeah. Firewalk with Me, which was because he'd mm. always maintained that what interested and motivated him as a storyteller was Laura Palmer and the murder of Laura Palmer. And in the film, he mm. sort of delved back into her, you know, final few days and the the the, the other elements of the story that I won't spoil yeah. for anyone foolish enough to have not watched twin peaks yet um 
uh, he did that and that was that and that was an interesting film and much like season 24 I think it's best left on a shelf for about 20 years and then you come back to it with fresh <laughs> eyes and it's like a fine it is like wine. a fine wine although um no yes let's just stick with that and then <laughs> uh and I'm I'm going to say obviously but probably not to most people but but for <laughs> nerds like me who just spend all their time googling their favorite things on into the google to see if you know there's going to be a new series of this or if that's coming back or whatever mm. they revived twin peaks in 2017 on showtime for mm -hmm. a what was originally described as a limited event uh, it then became officially season three um but yeah they right. they, they brought twin peaks back um, was it as good? Uh, so I I still... <laughs> uh, and where are we now? It's about two years since that first couple of episodes of that series were broadcast. So I've had two years to think about this. I don't know. Um, I, think, I think of the new series as being very much a continuation of the film Firewalk With Me rather than a continuation of the classic TV show. a lot right. There's a lot of genius in there. Um, and they do some really interesting things with some of the main characters. Uh, and time has passed in a very satisfying way, and you pick up some of these old characters now, 25 years down the line, um, and you're able to go, you know, oh, that's interesting, you've ended up there, or, yeah, I kind of figured you'd end up in this position or whatever. They introduce a lot of new mm. characters, a lot of new actors. Um, it's widened the scope of the show, so rather than being set in this fictional uh, town just, just outside Seattle, it's now expanded. You have large chunks of action set in uh, New York, Los Angeles, mm. Um and it's got a, a kind of story all all of its own, but which links back to the uh, the earlier couple of series. But I think it was David Lynch being given a big fat bag of cash and told to go away and do whatever he likes. And I don't think Mark Frost was as involved as he should have been or the show needed mm. him to be. He pretty much spent the last three years writing these two books that came out, The Secret History of Twin Peaks and The Final Dossier. Mm -hmm. And those are kind of really faithful continuations of the classic show and look at what might have happened before and after. And I think while he was writing those, David Lynch was just driving around with a big bag of something on his lap to smoke and a little shooting script he was clearly making up as he went along. And I think he just had too much freedom to do, you know, his own thing. Now, within that, you had mm -hmm. episode eight, which is kind of talked about in fairly hushed tones. It is a, an astonishing and amazing hour of, of television. It's kind of a, a basically, it's a, it's a little discreet movie, uh, Mm -hmm. more or less nothing to do with anything else uh visually it's staggering it's beautiful as uh, it's, it's very very um evocative and moving and it is one of the great things that's come along in the last you know 10 15 years but large chunks of the rest of it 
didn't convince me and and mm. don't convince me and for all this talk of a a fourth season um I'd be up for that if Mark Frost was in sole sole charge. Sounds like of it. they need him to kind of it, uh, it does it hold needs, the reins on some of the more yeah, outlandish it, it, ideas that uh, David Lynch exactly. has. Exactly, it, it, it's um, you know, it's like Lennon and McCartney or, or Chris Morris and Armando Iannucci. You need Frost and Lynch mm-hmm. tempering each other, keeping each other honest, and making each other work hard. And that's where the the first two series were this absolute undeniable landmark of television, whereas I think mm-hmm. season three was um, not. <laughs> not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you convinced me. I'll go. I'll go. Well, I'm not sure about season three. I, I, I would say yeah. that's less essential viewing. But mm. I mean, I, I'm. Mm. What am I now? I'm. Let's say I'm still 21. But I watched I watched series two of Twin Peaks when it was broadcast in 1991. I want to say I'd have been about 15 mm. at that time, and yeah. it terrified me so much then, and to to this day, it's the only thing that has ever scared me, and I'm still genuinely terrified of a certain individual. Um, who some people will know exactly who I'm talking about, and you maybe have yet mm. to encounter. But hmm. it'd be interesting to hear how you get on with it because, you know, n- nothing in this life can ever scare me having seen that when I was 15 because there's nothing that bad wow. under the bed. So I feel like I've got a bit of homework to do now. You, Your eyes will love you forever if you point them at Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll certainly give it a, a crack. You know, I've had it on my shelf for a good... I don't know, 10 years, I would imagine. So uh, I suppose I ought to dust it off and at least try and watch it. You should. You really should. Hmm. So, Ian, we've come to that point in the show where I normally like to ask the guests that are on, is there anything you want to recommend for our listeners to to check out apart from Twin Peaks? Um, I'm... Or, of course, I mean, there's there's an amazing series of novels by uh, uh, a very highly regarded author... Oh, those, yes, now... And they're available through... They they are. They're available to download for the Kindle or or any device that has the Kindle app on it. Winter Hill by Ian Mm. Martin. He is very highly regarded, mostly Ian Ian Martin. Martin. Um, Don't joke, because people type the wrong name and then they'll all be downloading Scratchman, (laughs) and I I, I don't want that. Um, The author, to be fair, is mainly highly regarded by himself. Um... But some there are some very nice reviews on there, so some people are very much loving the books, which is really good to see. That's and nice. the, the seventh and final instalment will be popping out at some point this year. Touch wood, fingers crossed. Ooh. It's all it's all done really, bar the uh, editing and cover design and so mm. on. So I should get that sorted out. And. Um, Otherwise, I mean, no, there's not really a lot on TV to point anyone towards at the moment. I mean, I'm just re-watching all of The Sopranos because there's a new book that's come out. So oh. I'm, I'm basically watching that again and 
waiting for the next series of Game of Thrones. I have never watched an episode oh, of that. Oh, this is turning into a terrible series of revelations. <laughs> We've come full circle. Ian, at this point, is never going to ever come on I the mean, show ever again. I mean, it started off with, you know, me talking to you about my wavering fandom and asking for your forgiveness, but mm. now I think it's it's mm. full-on confession time. The tables yeah, have turned. They really have. You will... You will, and I mean this in a, in a nice way. You're a lovely guy, but you will burn in hell unless you watch these things. <laughs> Harsh but fair. Harsh but fair. Well, speak for myself. Um, what can I recommend? Well, music-wise, uh, there's a band I really like. They're English. Uh, they're called White Lies. Are you aware of them? Um, n- no, I'm only aware of about three bands no. now. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> Um, so they've been going since, I want to say, sort of mid-2000s, and their first album is brilliant. Uh, they were compared at the time, not, I, I suppose it's a fair comparison to the likes of Joy Division, Interpol, okay. Editors, okay. that sort of sound. Very sort of glacial uh, but one thing I felt they always had, which perhaps some of their peers didn't have, was a, a real sort of pop sensibility. So there was always that sort of element to it, which kind of came through. And they brought out a new album this month, as we record. And they've I perhaps have missed out the last couple of albums. I, I bought the first two, which I really liked. And I've sort of, you know, lost touch. But I saw they had a new one out. I thought, I'll have a listen. And it's really good. It's quite poppy. Mm. So they've gone sort of over more into sort of synth pop. Um, It's kind of 80s sounding vibe to it. But they're really, really good. I like them a lot. Sounds great. I'll give that a listen. I might might stick a track on the end. Do it. Do it. Well, yeah. (laughs) What could what could possibly go wrong? Um, please please yeah, don't sue me. Don't 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 sue him. Anyway, you, you're listening to Radio Free Scaro, and <laughs> uh, thank you very much for coming on, Ian. Oh, it's a real pleasure to talk to you been, again. It's been lovely chatting again. Thank you for having me and, and listening to me witter on. Um, well, it's been a bit of a ramble, hasn't it, from both sides? But I've often they can, be, they can be they can be the best podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much for coming on and hopefully you'll come oh, I'd back love again to. Too. thank you very much so thanks again to Ian and just a couple of quick shout outs before we go um, I'd like to point you in the direction of Strangers in Space which is the new podcast from JR and the boys who used to do the Blue Box podcast so uh, if you've listened to that show before you'll know what to expect it's a really good show so check that out also, check out the Prog to Who podcast. I'll be joining the guys on their Star Trek Discovery offshoot show called Discovery Log, and that should be out in the next couple of days. But thanks for listening. We're going to play out with a track by White Lies, and it's called Time to Give. You turn to me. I say, what's there to talk about? Over 15 years, we've talked about it all. I've learned to be as alone as together means. Because we bring me 
Catch to pain, and you dress the scars for proof. 